Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, Part 4. We might ask ourselves, why does Mrs. Dalloway give parties, and why is this party so important to her? The novel includes a number of meditations on life and death. For Clarissa, who loves life and plunges into life in the beginning of the novel, the party is a kind of offering. As the narrator says, an offering for the sake of offering, perhaps. Anyhow, it was her gift. Nothing else had she of the slightest importance. Could not think, write, or even play the piano. She muddled Armenians and Turks, loved success, hated discomfort, must be liked, talked oceans of nonsense, and to this day, ask her what the equator was, and she did not know. All the same, that one day should follow another, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that one should wake up in the morning, see the sky, walk in the park, meet Hugh Whitbread. Then suddenly in came Peter, then these roses, it was enough. After that, how unbelievable death was, that it must end, and no one in the whole world would know how she had loved it all, how every instant, end quote. This is another of these passages reminiscent of the existential idea expressed by Martin Heidegger, being toward death. The idea that life, because it ends, somehow has more meaning. So the party is an offering for the sake of offering. Clarissa has the gift of making connections between people, not matchmaking a la Emma Woodhouse, but the gift of social connection. Peter had referred to her somewhat derisively as the perfect hostess, but in Mrs. Dalloway, being the perfect hostess is a kind of gift, and it is not demeaning at all. We might look at one of the minor characters of the novel, Miss Kilman, Elizabeth's tutor, and ask what purpose she serves. There is a story of Miss Kilman's religious conversion, her critical views of Clarissa, her former persecution as a German, and her relationship with Elizabeth, who is 17, a relationship that at times, although she is Elizabeth's history tutor, seems somewhat inappropriate. She also inspires Clarissa's reflection on love and religion, both of which destroy in Clarissa's view. Clarissa doesn't want to convert anyone. She wants everybody to be themselves, and she sees passion as degrading. The mystery of life for Clarissa, the miracle, is in the everyday and ordinary things and people, like the old woman across the way that Clarissa looks at periodically. Quote, and the supreme mystery which Kilman might say she had solved, or Peter might say he had solved, but Clarissa didn't believe either of them had the ghost of an idea of solving, was simply this. Here was one room, there another. Did religion solve that, or love? End quote. This statement that here was one room, there another, represents a denial of objective values and an emphasis on the reality of individual experience, which is a very existential concept. 
I have mentioned the novel's numerous references to the chimes of Big Ben that represent official, or as Paul Ricoeur calls it, monumental time. There is a curious passage where, after the description of the chimes of Big Ben, we hear about another clock that always chimes two minutes later, interrupting Clarissa's meditation on the destructive power of love and religion. Here the other clock, the clock which always struck two minutes after Big Ben, came shuffling in with its lap full of odds and ends, which it dumped down as if Big Ben were all very well with his majesty laying down the law, so solemn, so just, but she must remember all sorts of little things besides, Mrs. Marsham, Ellie Henderson, glasses for ices, all sorts of little things came flooding and lapping and dancing in on the wake of that solemn stroke which lay flat like a bar of gold on the sea. Volubly, troublously, the late clock sounded, coming in on the wake of Big Ben with its lap full of trifles, end quote. Perhaps this late clock undermines the authority of time, suggesting that even monumental time may not be absolute. You might recall the previous passage about the clocks of Harley Street, the street of famous physicians. The clocks of Harley Street nibbled at the June day, counseled submission, and upheld authority. This is an ironic reference to Sir William Bradshaw, who counsels submission, but perhaps even his authority is not absolute either. We come now to one of the most dramatic passages of the novel, the tragic ending of Septimus Warren Smith, our war veteran suffering from what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder, what was then referred to as shell shock. Septimus, as we have said, lives constantly in a present filled with memories of his past that he is unable to separate from the present. He constantly sees Evans, his dead comrade and officer, coming toward him. Ironically, here we see Septimus in a much calmer and seemingly improved state of mind, watching the fading light of the day, conversing with his wife Rezia, who is sewing some decorations on a hat that she is making for the daughter of Mrs. Filmer, her landlady. He takes an interest in her work converses with her about the relationships of Mrs. Filmer's family. The conversation seems like the mundane chit-chat of a married couple, nothing to suggest emotional turmoil. Septimus even helps Rezia affix some ribbons and beads and artificial flowers to the hat. Quote, he began putting odd colors together, for though he had no fingers, could not even do up a parcel, he had a wonderful eye, and often he was right, sometimes absurd, of course, but sometimes wonderfully right, end quote. The mention of Septimus having no fingers is not literal, but just refers to the fact that he is not particularly good with his fingers. Rezia is truly happy and begins to feel that Septimus may be better after all. Septimus falls asleep, and when he awakens, Rezia is gone. She has escorted the small child who delivered the evening paper back to her mother. 
Awakening alone, Septimus becomes terrified and is overwhelmed by feelings of paranoia that Holmes and Bradshaw are on him as he keeps thinking. Rezia returns, but is unable to calm him. He babbles about the things he has written and drawn on papers. Quote, now for his writings, how the dead sing behind rhododendron bushes, odes to time, conversations with Shakespeare, Evans, 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 his messages from the dead, do not cut down trees, tell the prime minister, universal love, the meaning of the world, burn them, he cried, end quote. As Rezia attempts to calm him, Dr. Holmes comes for a visit. Hearing Holmes's voice on the stairs as Rezia is trying to prevent the doctor from entering proves too much for Septimus. Holmes was coming upstairs. Holmes would burst open the door. Holmes would say, in a funk, eh? Holmes would get him. But no, not Holmes, not Bradshaw. Getting up rather unsteadily, hopping indeed from foot to foot, he considered Mrs. Filmer's nice clean bread knife with bread carved on the handle. Ah, but one mustn't spoil that. The gas fire? But it was too late now. Holmes was coming. Razors he might have got, but Rezia, who always did that sort of thing, had packed them. There remained only the window, the large Bloomsbury lodging house window, the tiresome, the troublesome, and rather melodramatic business of opening the window and throwing himself out. It was their idea of tragedy, not his or Rezia's, for she was with him. Holmes and Bradshaw liked that sort of thing. He sat on the sill but he would wait till the very last moment. He did not want to die. Life was good, the sun hot. Only human beings, what did they want? Coming down the staircase opposite, an old man stopped and stared at him. Holmes was at the door. I'll give it you, he cried, and flung himself vigorously, violently down onto Mrs. Filmer's area railings. The coward, cried Dr. Holmes, Bursting the door open, Rezia ran to the window. She saw. She understood. Dr. Holmes and Mrs. Filmer collided with each other. Mrs. Filmer flapped her apron and made her hide her eyes in the bedroom. There was a great deal of running up and down stairs. Dr. Holmes came in, white as a sheet, shaking all over, with a glass in his hand. She must be brave and drink something, he said. What was it? Something sweet for her husband was horribly mangled, would not recover consciousness. She must not see him, must be spared as much as possible, would have the inquest to go through, poor young woman. Who could have foretold it? A sudden impulse. No one was in the least to blame, he told Mrs. Filmer. And why the devil he did it, Dr. Holmes could not conceive. End quote. At this very moment, the clock strikes six, as Rezia drinks the drug given her by Holmes and is falling asleep. Mrs. Filmer thinks that Rezia should accompany her husband in the ambulance that is called, for married people ought to be together, but they must do as the doctor said. Let her sleep, said Dr. Holmes, feeling her pulse. She saw the large outline of his body standing dark against the window. So that was Dr. Holmes. End quote. 
Peter Walsh hears the bells of the ambulance taking Septimus to the hospital as he walks nearby, thinking about Clarissa's party. Part of him would rather stay at home and read a book, but decides that he would go to Clarissa's party because he wanted to ask Richard what they were doing in India, the conservative duffers. What did the government mean, Richard Dalloway would know, to do about India? You might recall that Peter has just returned from five years in India, which is still part of the British Empire. If the novel is set in 1923, Peter may be thinking of some recent events. There had been a massacre when British troops fired into a crowd, and in 1922, Gandhi was first sentenced to six years in prison, which made him a martyr and inflamed the Indian people against the British. These are probably the events that Peter would like to ask Richard about. There is also a reference in this passage to Mr. Willett's summertime, which is the equivalent of daylight savings time, a part of the war effort to save power. Peter is marveling that it is still light so late in the evening. Yet doesn't the very idea that the hours of the day can be altered by decree symbolize the fact that time is arbitrary, even as it is associated with authority? We move now to the party itself, the climactic event of the novel. Clarissa is being the perfect hostess, saying, How delightful to see you to everyone, as they are announced. Quote, She could see Peter out of the tail of her eye, criticizing her there in that corner. Why, after all, did she do these things? Why seek pinnacles and stand drenched in fire? Might it consume her anyhow? burn her to cinders, better anything, better brandish one's torch and hurl it to earth than taper and dwindle away like some Ellie Henderson. It was extraordinary how Peter put her into these states just by coming and standing in a corner, end quote. It's interesting how Peter and Clarissa are still so attuned to each other emotionally after all these years and despite her refusal to marry him. Each is very perceptive of the other's moods. During the party, there are three references to blowing yellow curtains. First, gently the yellow curtain with all the birds of paradise blew out, and it seemed as if there were a flight of wings into the room, right out, then sucked back, for the windows were open. Second, the curtain with its flight of birds of paradise blew out again. And finally, the blowing curtains. A number of critics have likened the imagery of the blowing curtains to the soul of Septimus entering the party, because we will see that the news of his death does impact the party, for the Bradshaws have been invited. They are late in arriving and explain that they were delayed because of a young man, a veteran of the war, who had killed himself. Paul Ricoeur calls this the knot that ties together both Septimus and Clarissa, of which I will have more to say later. Sally Seaton makes an appearance at the party, too. It has been some years since the two have seen each other. She is now Lady Rossiter, who has a large estate and 10,000 pounds a year and five enormous sons who are all at Eton. 
Her estate is near Manchester, one of the industrial towns of the north. She had married the son of a coal miner who has made his way in the world, has become wealthy, and even has a title. How ironic that Sally has become one of these wealthy landowners, she who had read Shelley and William Morris and had had radical ideas such as abolishing property. She is quite similar to Clarissa herself, who had radical ideas in her youth, but has now married a Tory or conservative member of parliament. A few more comments about the Bradshaws and the news of Septimus's death. Clarissa sees Richard talking to Sir William Bradshaw and his wife. There is a description of her perception of Sir William. Clarissa looked at Sir William talking to Richard. He did not look like a boy, not in the least like a boy. She had once gone with someone to ask his advice. He had been perfectly right, extremely sensible, but heavens, what a relief to get out to the street again. There was some poor wretch sobbing, she remembered, in the waiting room, but she did not know what it was about Sir William, what exactly she disliked. Only Richard agreed with her, didn't like his taste, didn't like his smell, but he was extraordinarily able. They were talking about this bill. Some case, Sir William was mentioning, lowering his voice, it had its bearing upon what he was saying about the deferred effects of shell shock. There must be some provision in the bill, end quote. And the narrator goes on, a young man, that is what Sir William is telling Mr. Dalloway, had killed himself. He had been in the army. Oh, thought Clarissa, in the middle of my party, here's death she thought. A few points that I want to make here. Clarissa's thoughts about not liking Sir William are significant and very similar to Rezia's impression that she did not like that man. Notice also that recalling her own visit to Sir William to ask his advice about something, she thinks, what a relief to get out to the street again. This echoes that memorable passage earlier in the novel about the parties at the Bradshaws and how at the end of the evening, the guests breathed in the air of Harley Street, even with rapture, which relief, however, was denied to his patients. There is something oppressive about the Bradshaws, and Clarissa perceives that here. As to her thought that, in the middle of my party here's death, she continues to think about this, quote, What business had the Bradshaws to talk of death at her party? A young man had killed himself, and they had talked of it at her party. The Bradshaws talked of death. He had killed himself. But how? Always her body went through it first when she was told suddenly of an accident. Her dress flamed, her body burnt. He had thrown himself from a window. Up had flashed the ground, through him, Blundering, bruising, went the rusty spikes. There he lay with a thud, thud, thud in his brain, and then a suffocation of blackness. So she saw it. But why had he done it? And the Bradshaws talked of it at her party. She had once thrown a shilling into the serpentine, never anything more. But he had flung it away. They went on living. She would have to go back. The rooms were still crowded. People kept on coming. They, all day she had been thinking of Borton, of Peter, of Sally. They would grow old. A thing there was that mattered. A thing wreathed about with chatter, defaced, obscured in her own life, 
let drop every day in corruption, lies, chatter. This he had preserved. Death was defiance. Death was an attempt to communicate. People feeling the impossibility of reaching the center which mystically evaded them. Closeness drew apart. Rapture faded. One was alone. There was an embrace in death. But this young man who had killed himself, had he plunged holding his treasure? If it were now to die, twere now to be most happy, she had said to herself once, coming down in white. Or there were the poets and thinkers. Suppose he had had that passion and had gone to Sir William Bradshaw, a great doctor, yet to her obscurely evil, without sex or lust, extremely polite to women, but capable of some indescribable outrage. Forcing your soul, that was it. If this young man had gone to him, and Sir William had impressed him like that with his power, might he not then have said, indeed she felt it now, life is made intolerable. They made life intolerable, men like that. End quote. This perception of Septimus's death is quite striking. On the one hand, it is ironic that Septimus, who cannot feel, plunges to his death, and at her party where she hears of it, Clarissa feels his death, has the physical sensation of the railing spikes going through her body. And though she has never met Septimus, she perceives very keenly why he has done it, that there is a communication in death. She likens the act to throwing away a shilling into the serpentine, a gift that is thrown away. The serpentine, by the way, is a kind of lake in London. She sees Septimus's death as being defiance, and she understands how oppressive Sir William is, as she thinks a great doctor, yet to her obscurely evil. Clarissa really perceives it all, and this perception of death and its meaning as communication and defiance somehow enables her to live more. Looking again at the old woman across the way, Clarissa is fascinated with the way the woman is moving about and doing ordinary, mundane things. It is as if the death of Septimus has come to her in a message that has been a gift to her, that has enriched her. She returns to the party as many of the guests are beginning to leave. We see Peter talking to Sally, and you might recall that they had once been intimate friends back in Borton where Sally was Peter's advocate with Clarissa. The novel closes with Peter on the couch, waiting to speak with Clarissa. I will come, said Peter, but he sat on for a moment. What is this terror? What is this ecstasy, he thought to himself? What is it that fills me with extraordinary excitement? It is Clarissa, he said, for there she was, end quote. In other words, Clarissa has a particular quality, a presence. This is a callback to a passage from earlier in the novel when Peter was recalling the personalities of the group at Borton and muses that Clarissa possessed that extraordinary gift, that woman's gift of making a world of her own wherever she happened to be. She came into a room. She stood, as he had often seen her, in a doorway with lots of people around her. But it was Clarissa one remembered, not that she was striking, not beautiful at all. There was nothing picturesque about her. She never said anything specially clever. 
There she was, however. There she was. And the novel ends with the repetition of that phrase, there she was.